Hello, podcast listeners. This is Charles Chandler. Well, we're up to episode number 44. We're calling this How the Visible Hand of Management Has Replaced the Invisible Hand of the Market. This is actually a rerun of um, episode number 5, which was first aired in March of 2016. We've got some new episodes coming up in the coming weeks. We'll have some exciting announcements about new things that are going to be happening on the podcast before too long. But right now, we're still delving back into the archives. This is a pretty good episode. Uh, Enjoy. Welcome to the Age of Organizational Effectiveness. This is the podcast that explores stories about organizations and their performance. I'm your host, Charles Chandler. Today we're going to be doing something a little bit different. I'm titling this uh, in the form of a question, Has the visible hand of management replaced the invisible hand of the market? We're going to be delving back into Adam Smith, who was the father of the invisible hand, I suppose, and coming all the way forward to Alfred D. Chandler, Jr., with his book of 1977, The Visible Hand, about the managerial revolution in American business. First, it's been said that Adam Smith uh, was the first one to mention the invisible hand. That's true in, in some respects, at least. He mentioned it three times, although there's some debate about whether he actually meant it to refer to the market. Uh, he only mentions it, mentions it one time in his book, Wealth of Nations. Despite its um, 785 pages, at least in my edition, um, there's only one mention of the invisible hand. And that relates to support of domestic industry to that of foreign industry. He says... A merchant intends only his own gain, and he is in this, as in many other areas or cases, led by an invisible hand to promote an an end which is no part of his intention. By pursuing his own interest, he frequently promotes that of the society more effectively than when he really intends to promote it. So this is an idea that the invisible hand of the market, at least in 1776, when uh, Adam Smith was writing, was the dominant force in the economy. But I think we have to remember, in those days, we had essentially animal animal power upon the land and uh, wind power upon the seas. Uh, and so production uh, was actually uh, limited and distribution was certainly limited to the extent that um, uh, travel could take place in the Americas. Um, in, in his 1977 book, Alfred Chandler writes about the visible hand, uh, arguing that the visible hand has now replaced the invisible hand of the market. And he has seven propositions that he puts forward uh, to make his case. Um, I'm going to go through these propositions. But uh, one thing to note is that as late as 1840, and certainly prior to 1840, when Adam Smith was writing in 1776, uh, there were no middle managers in the United States. That is, there were no managers who supervised the work of other managers and in turn reported to senior executives who themselves were salaried managers. 
Instead, you had very small enterprises made up of just a few people in which the managers owned and the owners managed. So we're going to go through these uh, propositions that um, Alfred Chandler put forward. The first one is that modern multi-unit business enterprise replaced small traditional enterprise when administrative coordination permitted greater productivity, lower costs, and higher profits than coordination by market mechanisms. So the idea here is that internalization gave the enlarged enterprise many advantages and by bringing transactions into the firm and taking them out of the market itself, uh, firms were able to grow larger. And this point uh, is certainly made by a paper written by Ronald Coase, COASE, in 1937, uh, which he talks about the nature of the firm, and he actually won a Nobel Prize for this paper. It basically introduces the concept of transaction costs to explain why firms exist, uh, because if you only had the market and you had to go out to the market every time you wanted to have a transaction, you have uh, you know inf- information and negotiation costs as well as um, time costs and limits on, on how many things you can actually get done uh, in that way. Um, as an example of the kinds of markets that existed in Adam Smith's time and up to 1840, I think I know what he was talking about because when I joined the Peace Corps in in the late 70s, or late 60s rather, I went to Nepal. And in Nepal, I was stationed in a village uh, pretty much in the center of the country at about elevation of 4,500 feet. Uh, It was called Tanzan in the Palpa district, and I was uh, the district engineer for His Majesty's government. Um, And in in doing that, um, we were off in an area that had no road, Uh, No electricity, no running water, no telecommunications. Uh, So we were essentially cut off from the rest of the world uh, unless you wanted to walk 18 miles to the nearest uh, road, Uh, at at which point uh, you could uh, find out what else was going on in other places. So in in that economy, we had very small little firms and, and peddlers that would come by and certainly you would negotiate for everything. If you wanted to go buy bananas in the morning, you would negotiate a price by spending a few minutes uh, sort of haggling over how many bananas you could get for a rupee. Um, and if you wanted to have some clothes made, you would have to go to the cloth shop and sit with the merchant and haggle over the price of the cloth and, and also, of course, deciding how much you needed, and of what type. Then you would take it to the tailor, uh, who would, again, uh, have to negotiate uh, what it would cost to uh, make a shirt. And so everything was basically made on demand. Uh, It was unique product production in which uh, an artisan or a specialist would um, make something specifically for the end user. Um, and and there was no standardization, of course. It all relied upon the skill of the artisan. Uh, there was no mass production or flexible mass production there, which we were talking about. If you wanted uh, goods that had been made by mass production, you'd have to go to India, uh, where certainly there were some manufacturing operations and uh, things like... Um, dishes and uh, you know silverware and other things were being made and 
and you could take those up into the hills. But in large part, you were cut off unless you, you brought things with you. So as I see it, the at least according to uh, Alfred D. Chandler, uh, who's an economic historian and looked at the managerial revolution in American business, you know, his first proposition was that multi-unit business enterprises replaced small traditional enterprise when it became advantageous to do so. His second proposition says that that the advantages of internalizing the activities of many business units within a single enterprise could not be realized until a managerial hierarchy had been created. Such advantages could be achieved only when a group of managers had been assembled to carry out a function formally handled by price and market mechanisms. So it wasn't until we had managers of managers uh, and we had a cadre of um, middle managers that um, enterprises began to grow large. And it wasn't until uh, firms started incorporating essentially uh, transactions that would normally be carried uh, by haggling in the market uh, in earlier days when they started incorporating those transactions into the firm and hiring staff and uh, standardizing and bureaucratizing um, uh, these transactions that uh, firms could in fact grow larger. They were saving money by not having to go to the market every time to, to uh, carry out many of the transactions. The third proposition is that modern business enterprise appeared for the first time in history when the volume of economic activities reached a level that made administrative coordination more efficient and more profitable than market coordination. So basically it was coming, uh, these increases were coming uh, when new technology and, and mark expanding markets were coming about. Uh, the fourth proposition is that once a managerial hierarchy had been formed and had successfully carried out its function of administrative coordination, the hierarchy itself became a source of permanent power and continued growth. The fifth proposition is that the careers of the salaried managers who directed these hierarchies became increasingly technical and professional. Here we saw the emergence of accountants and uh, uh, engineers at a later point and, and other specialists of that sort. The sixth proposition is that as the multi-unit business enterprise grew in size and diversity and as its managers became more professional, the management of the enterprise became separated from its ownership. Here we see the first uh, emergence of agents, basically, within the enterprise who were separated from the owners. The seventh proposition is that in making administrative dis decisions, career managers preferred policies that favored the long-term stability and growth of their enterprises to those that maximize current profits. Uh, of course, that's quite different than today. Um, we see today uh, managers operating in, in totally different ways. The eighth and final proposition uh, is that the large enterprises grew and dominated major sectors of the economy. But as they did that, they altered the basic structure of these sectors and of the economy as a whole. So by the middle of the 20th century, around 1950 or so, the salaried managers of a relatively small number of large mass producing, large mass retailing, and large mass transporting enterprises coordinated current flows of goods through the processes of production and distribution 
and allocated the resources to be used for future production and distribution in major sectors of the economy. By By then, the managerial revolution in American business had been fully carried out. So it was the visible hand of management that replaced the invisible hand of market forces where and when new technology and expanded expanded markets permitted an unprecedented, a historically unprecedented high volume and speed of material through the processes of production and distribution. Before 1840, two or three men could administer well the activities any enterprise had involving the distribution of goods. But after 1840, as, as the railroads came along um, and as water power and steam power was harnessed more and more in various industrial centers, uh, production picked up quite a bit. As early as 1795, Oliver Evans constructed a continuous process flour mill on Brandywine Creek in Delaware. This mill annually milled 100,000 bushels of wheat into flour. It employed six workers who spent most of their time closing barrels. So we see as, as things moved on, certainly it was a different world compared to Adam Smith's world. And uh, managers were taking a much more active role in the economy. Firms, in fact, were then incorporating many of the transactions within their own orbits that had been previously done in the free market. So the main point here is that there's a good case to be made for the idea that currently we live in a managerial economy rather than a free market economy. And that has great implications for how we think about the world around us. In the old days where two or three or even ten people managed an enterprise, later it became common for much, much larger enterprises to come on the scene The coming of the telegraph in the late 1840s, as well as the perfection of procedures first developed on the Western Railroad, helped to make rail travel relatively safe, and it was the operational requirements of the railroads that demanded the creation of the first administrative hierarchies in American business. It was the rail and telegraph companies themselves that were the first modern business enterprises to appear in in the United States. They were the first to require a large number of full-time managers to coordinate, control, and evaluate the activities of a number of widely scattered operating units. And for this reason, they provided the most relevant administrative models for enterprises in the production and distribution of goods and services when such enterprises began to build on the basis of new transportation and communication networks. In the 1850s, Large railroads were already employing from 40 to 60 full-time salaried managers, of whom at least a dozen, and often more, were middle or top management. In the 1850s, top management included the president, the general superintendent, and the treasurer. By the 1880s, a rail shipment could move from one part of the country to another without a single transshipment. By then, the traffic departments of the major railroads had become responsible for moving a large share of the long-distance traffic within the United States. This internalization of the activities and transactions previously carried out by many small units well underway in the 1850s was completed by the 1880s. The 1880s and early 1890s witnessed the culmination of 
technological as well as organizational innovation and standardization. In those years, the United States railroads acquired a standard gauge and a standard time, moved toward standard basic equipment in the forms of automatic couplers, air brakes, block signals, and adopted uniform accounting practices. Thus, by about 1880, American railroad managers had taken on the standard appurtenances of a profession. They had their societies and their journals. They moved through life along a well-defined career path. By then, they saw themselves and were recognized by others as a new and distinct business class, the first professional business managers in America. It was the economy and the velocity of transportation that provided the basic underpinnings of the institutional changes in American production and distribution that occurred in the latter part of the 19th century. The railroad was, therefore, in every way the pioneer in modern business administration. The great railway systems were, by the 1890s, the largest business enterprises, not only in the United States, but also in the world. As the century opens, each of the more than 30 railroad systems had a capitalization greater than any urban transit system, greater than any power or light company, and greater than Western Union. They employed more workers and carried out a greater number and variety of operations. And the United States, the railroad, not the government or the military, provided training in modern large-scale administration. In Europe, on the other hand, the much larger military and government establishments were a source for the kind of administrative training that became so, so essential to the operation of modern industrial, urban, and technological advanced economies. One clear difference between the rise of modern business enterprise and with it the rise of modern capitalism in the United States and Europe was therefore the role of government played in providing the transportation and communication infrastructure and in furnishing modern administrative procedures. In Europe, public enterprise helped to lay the base for the coming of modern mass production and mass distribution. In the United States, this base was designed, constructed, and operated almost wholly by private enterprise. The point of this discussion is to ask the same question that we began with. Has the visible hand of management replaced the invisible hand of the market in our economy? Has Alfred Chandler really made his point that managerial capitalism has replaced free market capitalism. What we've tried to do is contrast the world of Adam Smith, in which we had very, very small firms competing in the market, with today's situation where over time firms have grown large and taken up a large proportion of the economy, incorporating as they go transactions that would otherwise have been done in the old days within the free market. Transactions within firms are now driven by institutionalized procurement processes uh, that were very foreign to the world of Adam Smith. The free market has been thought of as frictionless and self-correcting, but transactions within firms are not cleared at free market prices. Rather, they remain slow and sticky to outside forces. Management is driven by the prevailing management ideas of the time, whether it is to maximize shareholder value, or some other objective that is being pursued. Even more problematic is when firms have incorporated agency theory and have incentivized their agents within the firm to produce based on certain objectives that may or may not be good overall for the firm. Another contrast we could draw with Adam Smith's time is illustrated by the Penn Factory, 
that uh, Smith himself describes in Wealth of Nations. It was specialization that allowed the factory to produce many more pens than could be done by a small a small group of people operating individually to make pens on their own. It was still manual labor, but due to specialization of labor, production could improve. What we learned from that example is that production was quite limited in that day by the production techniques available and the machinery that was available, which was basically hand tools. In our day, however, supply is not limited. We have factories that will produce many times the quantity of goods that we can sell in the market. We're essentially demand limited these days. So it's very important that firms find some way to be sure that whatever they produce will be consumed by the market. We'll talk in a later episode about how defining effectiveness in a way that ensures demand-side response is a way to link the performance of the firm to success in the market. What would have been natural, frictionless, and self-correcting in the old days in the free market can again take place if firms will open themselves up to demand-side response and, and by watching behaviors in real time can readjust. So the point of our episode today is simply to open the discussion about what economy we really live in and how that should affect our our thinking about management uh, within our firms. So that's about it for today. Join us again next week for more stories about organizations and their performance. I'm your host, Charles Chandler. Thanks and goodbye.